know about you guys, but I was blessed by that worship. Let's give the choir a, a round of applause. Amen. Today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter number 1, and we do have an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with us. As, as we uh, begin to um, get back into God's Word and study it, I just wanted to give a thank you on behalf of my family and I. This is our third Sunday here, and we've been really warmly welcomed by all of you guys and made to feel like right at home, both my family and I. And um, we just want to let you guys know we really appreciate you. And we're finding Arden First to be a church that's really loving, a church that really everyone's serving. It's amazing how many people I see serving each week. And then a church that's really full of generous givers. And I think because of that, God's going to use you guys to uh, reach this, this city and to partner with the other churches and make an impact for all eternity. Amen. So I just wanted to thank you guys. It's, it's been a blessing. This uh, past Sunday, my wife and I had a friend over, and uh, her name is Teresa McMillan. Some of you who went to Biltmore today, you know who she is. Um, we were really challenged by her story. For the past 15 years, she's went to 40 different countries and shared the gospel with thousands upon thousands of people, even in remotest parts that are very dangerous like Iraq and Iran, places like where most Christians are scared to go into, she goes right in the middle of it. And she told story about experiencing earthquakes and just going into the city the next day unafraid for the sake of the gospel. And as she was sharing, after she left, my wife and I were like, man, I don't know about you, but I was under conviction that I really need to step up my passion and witness for Christ because uh, she's, she's like us. She's in her 30s, but she, instead of, you know, getting married like many people, she's chose to live the, the prime of her life the past 15 years, going from country to country to share the gospel. And I've just been blown away. So as we read in First Peter, we're going to talk about the greatest rescue mission. And the greatest rescue mission is something that's really special because it involves you. And just a way of review from last week, um, for those of you just joining us this Sunday, we just started First Peter and there's a few major themes that stick out. And Tom, a few weeks ago, asked how many of you have ever heard a series through First Peter. And I think only one or two people in the congregation has heard it. And I'll, I'll tell you a few reasons why. One of the main themes in First Peter is suffering. How many of you like to hear about suffering? Nobody, right? That's not popular. A second major theme is holy living. And I grew up in a, a church where they emphasize holiness. But since then, I don't hear it very much in churches. Um, on a positive note, First Peter talks about no matter how challenging life may be, God has a glorious future for you. So if you'll just keep on keeping on, trust in the Lord, He has a future prepared for you. It talks about submission, which is not a popular, but it basically represents that God is sovereign. And even if your employer you don't like, um, you can trust God that He's got a plan even in your job. And then the gospel is a predominant theme, that the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. And we've got we to get the message out because we have a world that needs to hear the gospel. So today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter number 1, starting in verse 10. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you and read your word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. And God, I pray that this would not just be words from a stage, but this would be words from the Word of God, and that you would speak to our hearts. 
And God, I'm here not to present my opinion or my perspective, but I'm here to present the living words of God. So, Father, I pray that you would use me to share your word in a way that would honor the authorial intent of First Peter. So, Father, we give this message to you and pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be in verse number 10. It says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So in other words, the prophets knew the what. They knew the Messiah would come. They just didn't know the when. And God revealed to them that they were searching and researching and proclaiming God's message. It wasn't for their sakes, but it was for your sake. And verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who preach the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And that's kind of an interesting statement that the gospel is so powerful and so amazing that even it sends angels in amazement at how someone could go from not living a life that pleases God to God changing their lives. Even angels desire to look into. Verse 13, it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that's that's a phrase we don't often use today, but it comes from the ancient world where, you know, men had long, like, dresses and, you know, these robes around, and they would have to tuck them in their belt in order to run. So the idea is to, uh, in your mind, to tie up the loose ends, to be focused. And it says, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is coming back, and we've got to look at his coming and prepare ourselves. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he which called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, because I am holy. So today's message on Holy Hope Part 2, we're going to talk about the greatest rescue mission. And the first point I want to bring to you is the rescue mission. God has a wonderful plan to rescue you. He has a wonderful plan to rescue you. In verses 10 and 11, it talks about this salvation that was brought to you. And this salvation was so amazing that the prophets searched and researched, and the people in the Old Testament inquired, when was the Messiah going to come? All of human history is divided into the cross event, when Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. I mean, even when you write your check, you're writing after the year of our Lord. So I want you to think about the, the event that changed history. People before Jesus wanted to know when it would come. And it's so amazing when God does something that changes history forever. There's a story about good old Ed. And Ed is a guy that's interesting. He's from, he lives in Florida. And whenever he resided in Florida, people in that day would see him out at, as the sun was setting. He took a bucket of fish. And every day, Ed would walk to the end of the pier as the sun was setting. But the fish weren't for him to eat. They weren't even for the the, the fish out there to catch, you know, other fish, but the fish were actually for the seagulls. And every day at the same time, every Friday, 
Ed would sit at the end of the pier, and he would hold his bucket up, and all of a sudden these seagulls would come down and descend upon that bucket of fish. And all of a sudden, Ed, once everything was gone out of his bucket, he would walk back down to the pier, and he would go his way. And that story sounds a little crazy until you know the backstory. His real name is Eddie Rickenbacker, and he served in World War II, and he was a general in the Air Force. He flew a B-17 in the Flying Fortress, he and several other men. And as the story would have it, he was sent on a rescue mission to rescue General MacArthur. And as the situation would have it, his plane went down. But all eight men were able to survive the plane crash at the time, and they were on a life float. And you can imagine trying to survive in the water with sharks coming at you and different things. After eight days, their food and water ran out. And they were just petrified, didn't know what to do. So they had a little devotion, as the story goes, and they said a prayer, and they took a little nap. When all of a sudden, Ed saw something on his hat that landed as he was dozing off for a nap. And he realized it was a seagull. And he thought to himself, if I can just capture the seagull, this will be food for everyone on this little raft. So Ed grabbed the seagull, and they were able to use the seagull for food, and they used the um, parts of the seagull to catch other fish, and they survived. And they, they made it out alive. So Billy Graham later on talked to Ed and asked, what happened? And he said, Billy, it was kind of like an angel fell down from heaven and gave us life. So every Friday until the day Ed died, he would go at the end of the pier and he would see the seagulls and you could hear under his voice, thank you, thank you. Because the seagull that rescued him gave him and his other men life. And when I read that story, I was like, wow, it's such a good picture of how God has rescued us. And if we would just show this gratitude, just like Ed, every Friday, thank you, thank you for rescuing me. That is what God has done. And some of us, we were in need of rescue, but we didn't even realize it. When it says in verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully the grace that would come to you. You know, a lot of times we're in need of rescue and we don't even realize it. But God, even when we were unaware that we needed rescuing, he came for you. He was on a rescue mission for you. And the prophets of the Old Testament, they saw this vision. And I notice, it's interesting, it says through the Holy Spirit. The prophets didn't just make up the message they wanted to make up. It was God inspired them for what was to come. And the Bible that we read today is not just men's words on paper. It's people who were inspired by God and carried along by the Holy Spirit who wrote the very words of God. And we have this message in the gospel. And it's a message of hope. It's a message that no matter what you're going through, God has an amazing plan for your life. Amen? So as, as I was reading this and thinking about the prophets of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of prophecies about the Messiah. I'm just going to give you guys a few. And this is not in your outline. You can write them down. Isaiah 7:14. It says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear forth a son. You'll call his name what? Emmanuel. God with us. Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, 
And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I thought of Isaiah 53, where it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, faces from him. And it says, later on, it says that he was beaten for us. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are what? We are healed. Micah 5, 2 talks about Bethlehem. That out of Bethlehem would be a ruler in Israel whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Psalm 22 Literally hundreds of years before the crucifixion was ever invented, the prophet David says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. He prophesied about Jesus and his crucifixion. So can you imagine the rescue mission? I can't imagine what it was like. Even before the world was created, God had you on his mind. And I, I, in my human understanding, I can't understand how God would create everything and know that humanity would rebel against him. For those of you who are parents or grandparents, you know how hard it is when your child turns away and says, I don't love you, Mom, or I don't love you, Dad. Every parent has experienced that as your kids get older, your grandkids. And we, in that, we have a picture of us when God created this world for us and we fell away, we rebelled. And God said, you know what, I love you so much, I'm going to be on a rescue mission. This salvation is so powerful I'm going to come for you. What a mighty God we serve because he took what we deserve. Jesus came on a rescue mission for you to save you, to rescue you, to deliver you, and to free you. How many of you are thankful today that God rescued you? Amen. All right, number two. We not only have the rescue mission, but we have the rescue crew. God employed everyone and everything possible to give you every chance possible. I was reading about an earthquake that happened in 1989 in an area called Armenia. And over 30,000 people died in less than four minutes. And the story is told of a father. He had just dropped his kid off earlier that day, his son. And as he felt the quake trembling, he was in shock and said, Oh my goodness, my son are mad is at the school. i got to go check on him. So he left his wife in a secure location. And he went to go look for his son. And as he walked upon the school, he saw utter devastation. The school was a, as flat as a pancake. And the father, trembling, not knowing what to do, he rem- after the emotion and the panic cleared for just a moment, he remembered a promise he made to his son. He told his son, no matter what happens in life, I will be there for you. And that kept repeating over and over his mind, no matter what happens, I will be there for you. So all of a sudden, the father, not knowing what to do, walked over to the exact area where the boy's classroom would have been. And he started digging. Parents came up upon the scene. Mothers and fathers screaming and panning. My son, my daughter. And the father said, will you help me dig? And they were just in shock and they walked on. The fire chief came up and said, Son, Father, I just want you to know that everyone's dead. You need to move on. There's fires breaking all over the place. You're endangering yourself. You're endangering others. Move on. And the Father used the same line. Will you help me rescue my son? So they went on. Finally, the police department came. And they said, Sir, you're upset. You're angry. 
You just need to go home and rest. There's nothing you can do. Let us handle it. And the father looked at the police officers and said, Will you help me rescue my son? And they went on. Eight hours passed. He kept digging. Twelve hours passed. He kept digging. Twenty-four hours passed. The father was still digging up the rubble in hopes that his son, by some supernatural occurrence, was still alive. On the 38th hour, as he moved this boulder past, he heard a voice in the, the very recesses of the floor that had fallen. And it was his son. And he said, Armad, is that you? And his daddy said, yes, this is me, the son said. And the father said, son, how are you still alive? And he said, whenever it collapsed, there was a pocket that protected us. That did, the rocks didn't fall on us. And he said, son, what's going on? And the story said there were 13 of us left out of 38 who have passed on. And dad, we are scared, we are hungry, but we're so glad you're here. And the father said, son, I want you to come out first. And as the father went to go get the son out, the son said, father, daddy, I want you to rescue the others first because I know you're going to eventually rescue me. Save the others first because you have told me no matter what happens, you will always be there for me. So the father rescued the others, and then he rescued his son. And as I, I read that story that happened in 1989, I thought of us. We're in a world where people, where we don't realize it, but spiritually, spiritually they're perishing. And God is like, you are the rescued. The rescued are to become the rescuers. If God has rescued you, what are you doing to rescue others? And the father's voice comes in my mind. I will never leave you. I'm always here for you. And you know, the Father, our Father in heaven says that to us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm with you forever. So when we think about that, God used everything to rescue us. Look, at, look back in verse 12. I love verse 12. It says, to them, talking about the prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering. You think about that, that they were looking for the next generations. They were looking for generations to come, not for themselves. And if the body of Christ had the same posture, the same mindset, that it's not about us, it's about future generations, every church in America would be much fuller than it is because we'd think about the generations who aren't here yet. How many of you would love to have a church where your kids and grandkids bust down the doors to come in? Wouldn't that be the day if we had the same mindset that the prophets had looking not to them, but to those who had come before, we would change the lives of many. And the phrase where it says, angels desire to look into this, the gospel, that people are being saved. See, the thing about angels is, they're not saved like we are. I don't know why, but in God's grace, He chose to save us. And my father and I have often talked about, why don't the angels have a second chance? The ones that rebelled with, with Lucifer, the devil, why don't they get a second chance? And, I mean, we can debate that all day. We don't really know the answer to that. But for some reason, God gave us another chance. I mean, think about that. The angels that rebelled, they didn't get another chance. But we do. That's how gracious it is. And that verb says angels desire to look into. It's in the Greek. It's the imagery of an angel leaning forward, neck stretched out in awe of what God's doing. And as I was reading that, I was just like, okay, so what activity do angels have in the believer's lives? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because angels are throughout the whole Bible. I'm just going to give you a few highlights. 
Did you know that in Luke 15, 10, it says that angels throw a party in heaven when a person turns to Christ? It says that there is the rejoicing in the presence of angels. So whenever someone decides to accept Christ, to turn from their old life and turn, make, become a new person, there is a party going on in heaven. I think that's interesting. Did you know that angels watch over little children? Matthew 18.10 is the reference to that. It says, Do not despise these little ones, for their angels always behold the face of my Father. So little children have angels that watch over them. Some of you could testify, because if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be here today with all the crazy things you did as a kid. Angels can also be disguised as guests who are passing through. In Hebrews 13.1-2, it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained what? Angels without knowing it. So in a church this size, I don't think it would be a far stretch to say that several of you, if not many of you, have shown hospitality to people that you didn't know who they were, but they were actually angels. You ever thought about that? And one day you'll get a reward for the hospitality you showed. Pretty interesting. We know that believers, according to Hebrews 1.14, I'm going to read this, it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So we know that believers have angels. So we know little children have angels. We know believers have angels. For those who are non-believers, we don't really know. It doesn't say, but we know children and believers have angels. So angels, as, as God sees your life change and your life transform, Angels are at awe with the transformation. I mean, that just, it, it, it amazes me, that verse, angels look into these things. So whenever God changes your life, it doesn't just create a ripple effect in your life. It affects those around you, even affects people in heaven. Angels looking on at what God's doing. To me, that's just like, wow. So, no matter what you've done, I want you to think about this beauty. God sent His Son to die for you. He sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And the angels are at His command to protect you as the Lord wills. That's beautiful. So we have the rescue mission and we have the rescue crew. God has employed everyone and everything possible to give you every chance possible. It's my personal belief that because Jesus died for the whole world, He wants the whole world to come to Him. And He's given everyone chance after chance after chance but it's up to us to respond finally we have the response if God is on this rescue mission we talk about this salvation that's so amazing this great grace that's mind boggling that even angels desire to look into it what's my response and what's your response if you look at verse 13 it has a therefore and if any of you have been in church any period of time you ask what is the therefore Therefore, because of this great grace, here's my response. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, be focused. Don't let your mind be a playground. Some of you, your mind is like a playground where thoughts are all over the place. Satan is tempting you. People are discouraging you. And you're allowing your mind to be a playground for the enemy. Someone once said, I believe it was Martin Luther, you cannot stop a bird from flying above your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. In other words, Christian, because a thought comes to your mind doesn't mean it's yours. It means it's a temptation. It doesn't mean you yield to it. As a young man growing up, I had the hardest time. I was trying to live for the Lord, but I still had 
thoughts that were negative and thoughts that were ungodly. And still to this day, those thoughts come through. And I'm just like, how do I? And I, someone once explained to me, Timothy, we all have temptations. But don't claim like it's yours. If you know that's not you, you kick it out. It's just a, it's, it's a fiery arrow from the enemy that you just say, get behind me, Satan. You take those thoughts captive. So the Bible says, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, don't, don't let your mind be like a noodle. Be focused. Don't let it be a playground. It says, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may not realize it, and I may not realize it, but you and I need grace each and every day. If it's not for the grace of God, we won't be victorious throughout the day. So if you're having a really hard time now, there's a verse in James that says, but he gives more grace. So ask God to help you. Ask God to give you the grace that you need. And it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. So in other words, you know, you used to live a certain way. But when you came to Jesus, you changed the way you lived. And it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you got it all together, but it means you're trying. You're trying to follow him. So in the next verse, it says, be holy because what? I am holy. Now let's talk about holiness. Church, can we talk a little bit? Holiness. We don't really use that word a lot. But what is holiness? Well, holiness involves two major concepts. One is your position, and one is your practice. Your position in Christ, it says in the book of Colossians, that you are holy, blameless, and without fault. I could ask your spouse if that's true of you, and they would all tell me what? There's no way in the world. So how am I holy, blameless, and without fault? You can talk to my spouse. For those of you who are not married, I can talk to your parents. They would tell me the goods on you, right? But how is that possible? Well, it's like this. Because of what Jesus did for you, if you receive him into your life, he takes away all of your sins and misdeeds, and he cancels debt, and you are without fault in the sight of God. And that's, that's good news, right? Um, I remember hearing this story. It was this made-up story. But imagine, imagine if in your school... For those of you who can remember back when you were in college or high school, do you remember the kid that always got in trouble? You guys remember who that was in your school? Um, I'm not going to say the guy's full name in my school because I'm local. Someone may know what his, who he was. His name was Matthew. And this kid got in trouble, kicked out of school all the time. He always has that rebellious glint in his eye. He was up to something. For those of you who remember watching Saved by the Bell back in the day, he was the Zach Morris of the school. I mean, he was always planning and scheming. And just imagine if this guy was so smart, he could sneak, in, sneak into the principal's office. And you guys remember the perfect kid in your school, the teacher's pet that sat on the front row, the valedictorian that made straight A's. Some of you are in here, right? George, you're probably that guy. Straight A's, right? I mean, always had it together. Well, imagine if the kid that was supposed to drop out of school, get kicked out, made an exchange. He took the best kid's transcripts, and put it in his file, and he put his file, your transcripts into his file. So all of a sudden now, instead of having straight F's and kicked out of school and you know was mean to the teacher, now it's straight A's, perfect attendance. So now instead of getting a job working in a fast food restaurant, now you can all of a sudden go to Harvard or Yale or some elite school because you have the SATs, you have the grades, now, would that be fair to the other kid? That would be horrible, right? 
when you graduate and you're like, no colleges are calling your name because you have a bad transcript. And the other one who was the kid that should have been kicked out of school is now living a life he couldn't have lived otherwise. And that's the picture of the gospel. Jesus lived this perfect life that we couldn't live. He never made a mistake. He never said a curse word. He never um, had ungodly anger. He never did anything wrong. And all of a sudden, if you place your faith in Him, what happens in the heavenlies is God takes your transcript and my transcript, takes it out of the file, He nails it to the cross, and He puts Jesus' perfect transcripts in your folder. So every time God looks at that, He sees pure, blameless, without fault. Now that's positional holiness. Now we have the second type of holiness, which is practical, your daily lifestyle. So the whole process of growing in your Christian walk is becoming what you already are. You are positionally this way, and God's asking you to become this way in your daily lifestyle. Now, is it easy? Is it easy to live a Christian lifestyle in this world? Someone tell me. No, it's hard. But you know what? If you allow God's grace to live through you, this great grace we're talking about, God will give you the grace to become what you already are. You are this way positionally, and God will help you to become this in your daily lifestyle. And it's a lifelong process. And we will never get perfect until we get perfected by God in heaven. So I want you guys to think about that. As he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. So I want to give a story. This is a, a parable, but it has true-to-life implications. It's a story of a life-saving rescue mission, this lighthouse. And this, this rescue mission, this rescue station, was along the coast, and it saved many lives. But it was very old school. It only had one boat, only had one rescue boat. It had a very ragtag team of people that would go out and rescue the people. Until one day, they began to save person after person that was shipwrecked off the coast. And they would bring in these cold and hungry and almost half-dead people, and they would re- revive them give them new life, and send them the way, send them them on their way. But as it would happen, because this little small rescue mission became so popular, people began to want to give money to it. They said, you know what, this this place is too small, it's got a little cot, let's let's put plush carpet, let's give great beds, so whenever we rescue someone, they have a nice place to stay. So people would give money, they began to assemble, they had a club, they had committees, and they had meetings. And over time, it became so popular that they met and talked about rescuing people and they really forgot to rescue people. So they decided, you know what, we're having so much fun loving each other, let's hire a rescue team that will do the rescuing for us. So they hired a rescue crew that would do all the work so they could just have fun and you know, talk and have coffee and fellowship. And one day, a big boat crashed off the shore and they had many boats, smaller boats, bring in these people. And they, they, many of them were half dead, just barely out of it. And they were throwing them on the carpet. And they were able to revive many of them. But after everything was said and done, the plush carpet was dirty. The whole place, it just didn't have a good atmosphere because you had all these struggling people. And they had a committee meeting and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to be a rescue mission anymore. We're going to hire that off. And we're going to do something else. And some of the people on the board said, listen, we are a life-saving rescue station. 
That's, that's what our purpose is. We can't just sit here for fellowship club. We've got to rescue people. And they did a vote. And they decided, you know what, this is going to be a club that celebrates what has happened. We, we don't want to get the carpet dirty anymore. We'll, we'll just hire that on. Why don't you guys go down the shore a little bit and start your own rescue mission? So they did. And they began to rescue people. And unfortunately, as history would have it, it became just like the other rescue mission. It, it became a club, and they celebrated, and it became a fellowship. And to, to this day, according to the parable, if you walk along the coastline, there's rescue mission after rescue mission with great parking, plush carpet, but people are drowning. And when I read that story, I was just like, man, how many churches fit that description? At one time, they were a rescue station within a foot of hell. But over time, they began to, you know, let's, let's just hang out together. Let's just enjoy each other. And all of a sudden, the rescue mission becomes a country club. And all of a sudden, people all around you are perishing, but you're comfortable. The good thing about Arden First is we're not that way. And as long as God allows me to be the pastor here, we're going to be a rescue mission within a foot of hell. And we may have people that come in that don't smell right, don't look right, but that doesn't matter because we're not a showcase for saints. We are a hospital for sinners. Amen. So one more story and then a few closing thoughts. I read about this little boy that he was in a Sunday school class and he had some disabilities and he was hunched back and as he walked, his back was a little hunched over. And the kids made fun of him often, and it really broke his heart. So they were getting ready to stand before the congregation and memorize some scripture verses and recite it to the congregation. So as a little hunchback boy went up to the podium to give his portion of the memorized scripture, just untastefully out of nowhere, one of the kids in the class said, Take off your backpack, you hunchback. And the whole congregation's like, Oh my goodness, I mean, this is horrible. And out of nowhere, a gentleman stood up from the back and walked up and stood beside the boy and put his arm around him. And he said, I don't know who in the right mind would say something like this, but I'm proud of this boy because he's my son. And he picked him up and he carried him back to the audience, back to the chair. And as I thought about that, I saw myself. You know, I'm like that hunchback boy. You know, throughout life, we try to get things right. But we often fall short of God's grace. All of us do. When we talk about holiness, every one of us would say, I fall so short. But you know what? God the Father, because of who we are in Christ, He comes up to us and says, listen, you're my son, you're my daughter. I love you. I'm proud of you. So He wipes away our imperfections and He carries us through life. Isn't that a beautiful picture of holiness that when we don't have it figured out, God carries us? So as we close, I want to just give a, a few thoughts. And I'm not going to answer these thoughts for you. This is just for you to think about. Um, some of you may be here today and you encounter a situation. You're, you're a young man, middle-aged man at work. And um, someone of the opposite gender starts to show you some attention. And you've been working longer hours. And they begin to invite you out to lunch and you start to go out. And you find yourself getting attached to that person. What do you do? What would be the holy thing to do? 
Um, There may be someone in high school, college today where your professor, as intelligent as they seem, they say the Bible is an outdated book. It was written by people long ago who didn't know any better and it's not culturally relevant. And they present something that unless you believe this, you're intolerant. And they they think, you know, unless you, you go with what we believe, you just, you're a bigot. What's the holy thing to do? You know, I, I think about, there's a family reunion. You know, we have summertime coming up and you're at a cookout. And there's that one family member that you don't get along with. And every time the family cookout comes, the family reunion comes, you have a challenge. What, do I talk to the person? What do I do? What would the holy thing to be to do? Final thought before we close it out. Some of you ladies go out to dinner with some of your girlfriends and you, you have the ladies night out and it's fun. When all of a sudden, one of your best friends starts trashing their spouse. And out of nowhere, all the other ladies jump in talking about how they're unhappy in their marriages. And all of a sudden you hear about divorce and that comes up. And what should I do? And you sit there silent. What would be the holy thing to do? These are all tough questions. So your take-home thought is God rescued you to give you a new life with a new perspective. The rescued become the rescuers. So here's your challenge. Think about one person this week that needs rescuing. They may not even know it, but how can you show the love of Christ to them in a tangible way? Maybe it's taking them out to coffee. Maybe it's calling them up on the phone and saying, I thought about you this week. So that's your challenge this week. Think about one person that desperately needs the love and the grace of God. So as we close in a minute, we're going to have a hymn of response. And myself and some others will be at the front. Um, if you have some, a need you want to pray about, we'll be here to pray for you. But I just want to leave you with this thought. That God loves you so much and He's so crazy about you. And it's so amazing, the grace, that even angels are trying to figure it out. So if they can't figure it out, surely we can't figure out how amazing and extravagant is His love and His grace for us. The rescued become the rescuers. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is powerful. Please help us to follow You and honor You in all things. Father, right now as we have this final hymn of response, I pray that if there be one here today that needs rescuing, that you would just speak to their hearts. I pray if there be someone here that doesn't know you, God, that they would turn to you. And Father, for those of us who have gotten comfortable in our plush carpet and padded pews, help us to realize all this is great, but help us not to lose our mission. We're not a showcase for saints, but we're a hospital for sinners. We're all in need of God's grace. So Father, speak to your hearts. Right now as everyone's praying, we're going to sing in just a moment with every head bowed and every eye closed. Would there be someone that would say, Timothy, you know, when you mention about the parable of the rescue station, God tapped on my heart, just like he did your heart earlier. I need to be mindful of those around me. People are perishing without Christ. And I need to be be aware of that. So pray that God would make me more aware 
of my need to share this glorious grace with others. If that's you, raise your hand. I'm raising my hands with you. Thank you. See those hands? You put them down. Final question. Would there be here someone here that would say, Timothy, I didn't realize I needed rescuing, but when you mention about the gospel and how Jesus wants to take out my transcripts that were horrible, nail them to the cross, and puts his righteousness into my account, I want that. I want forgiveness. I want a new start. I want to live a life I couldn't have lived otherwise. If that's you, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anyone at all? Timothy, I need to give my life to Christ. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. See those hands. Right now, if you raised your hand, it's no magical prayer. It's your faith reaching out to God. Say something like this to God. God, I need a new start. I live life on my own for far too long. I believe that Jesus Christ came for me on a rescue mission. That He died for my sins and He rose again. So Jesus, I ask You to forgive me of my sins. I ask You to step out of heaven and into my heart. Make me a brand new person. And friend, if you prayed that prayer in a minute, I want to congratulate you. You're part of the family of God. Father, we love You and thank You. And all God's children said, Amen. This time, if you all stand, we're going to have the hymn of response. And if you pray to receive Christ, if you would like to join the church, if you have any other decision, I'll meet you at the front.